How many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Okay, quite a few. Um, awesome depiction of the final um, 24 hours of Jesus' life in, in two and a half weeks. We're going to show that movie here if you want to come and watch the movie in, in total. Um, the week of Easter, that Wednesday night, we're going to do that. But uh, that scene that we just watched um, is the depiction, of fairly accurate, of uh, the, the betrayal of Judas as uh, he comes into the garden. And one of the things that is obvious is that the kiss um, is such a treacherous thing to use to betray the Lord. Now, um, we think of, of uh, you know, the kiss as kind of a greeting and... Uh, We've been to some different places around the world. We, when we go to El Salvador, they uh, always like to hug. Um, so you end up, you know, hugging a lot of people. I, I get all my hugs in in El Salvador. That's why I don't hug anybody in the States. Um, when we uh, went to Ukraine on a mission trip the, the, in, you know, the, that part of the world, they like to kiss each other uh, as a greeting, which was, um, you can imagine, uh, much more uncomfortable, um, and I was just reflecting on how thankful I am that the Founding Fathers put in the Constitution that our nation would not uh, be a country that kisses each other when they greet. I think it's in there, Bill of Rights or something, but, um, you know, the kiss in, in the garden was a little different than just a greeting. It wasn't just you know, oh, you know, uh, hey, how are you kind of thing. Um, I didn't realize that until, you know, get to studying a little deeper into some of these things. Um, but the kiss was even more, more of a dramatic rebellion and betrayal and treachery than I even had considered because uh, it was intended in those days, that uh, a disciple or a student would kiss their rabbi or their leader, their teacher, as a sign of respect and authority. And you say, well, okay, that makes sense that Judas is, is particularly singling out Jesus for the Romans and the, and the Sanhedrin and, and the leaders to come and arrest him. Um, but the symbol you see is flipped because it was intended to be a sign of authority and he was actually indicating a rejection of Jesus' authority. Jesus had talked about this um, on many occasions when he quoted Isaiah. He said, you honor me, you remember this, with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And... Whenever I, I think about Judas, one of the things that um, just really gets to me personally, my heart, is the idea that Judas was not the exception to the rule. Judas's rejection of Jesus was the rule. Um, and how easy it is for us, and I say us, um, I mean human beings, but, but myself included, to give God <clears throat> lip service, you know, to, 
oh, I believe in God, I love God, I, you know, trust God, I, you know, believe in Jesus, and, and, uh, and yet how easy it is to have your heart be so far from God, not to obey Him, not to trust Him, truly trust Him, to walk closely with Him, to, um, to think that the, the belief is enough. And the relationship is kind of maybe a, a bonus, you know. If you, you have a relationship with God, wonderful. But as long as you believe in God, that's really what we're looking for. And, and from, you know, my perspective as a pastor preaching and teaching, you know, we, we really um, encourage the belief. And we, we hope that people will have a relationship. But honestly, without the relationship, the belief is nothing. And uh, our world, I don't know if you realize this or not, but our world primarily in the majority believes in God and, and yet does not know him. And that's where the danger is, is in that gap between believing in him and not knowing him personally and loving him dearly. And uh, the concern that uh, we should have, that I have, that is growing, is, is the, the concern of that gap. As believers, that we just say we believe in God and not know Him. And uh, the antidote, uh, I think we can see some of the answers um, in what happens here. Okay, so let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 14. And we're going to begin in verse 43, Mark 14, 43. What do we learn from the betrayal? It says, immediately, so right after, last week we talked about the garden and Jesus' um, most uh, dangerous moment, and really the most dangerous moment for world history, because Jesus is at a, a critical moment of deciding, is he going to do uh, what is necessary for salvation, or is he going to uh, reject that idea, but... Uh, we know he accepted God's will. It says, immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left and fled. And Father, we thank you that um, you sent your son. We, we thank you that you... <laughs> Um, we're willing to pay the price, Lord, that we couldn't pay. We thank you that you um, give us your Holy Spirit to, to give us understanding of what these things mean. We thank you uh, that you are so patient with us and, and gracious towards us, Lord, that when we see Judas in this, um, this story, in this depiction, Lord, we, uh, we, we have to try to understand our own uh, place in that, Lord. That the betrayal was 
is the betrayal of humanity against God and uh, that we play a part in that, that we uh, played a part in, in the need uh, for you to pay that high price, that we uh, have all uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory, but thank you that uh, the price was paid, that you've done all that was necessary to draw us close, Lord. But today, God, our, our prayer, my prayer, um, is that we would draw close, that uh, this would not be a, a, just an academic uh, exercise, Lord, where we think some correct things or believe uh, correct things, Lord, but that we would uh, take that knowledge and uh, let it sink into our hearts and let our hearts draw close to you and uh, let the, the healing and, and the uh, forgiving and, and the powerful, redeeming work of Jesus, Lord, begin to happen in our lives, even even those uh, many, many people who are saved and love you and trust you, God, that redeeming work has to happen daily, just working itself out in our lives on a regular, consistent basis, Lord, drawing us close. We tend to drift and uh, walk away and walk in different paths, Lord, that aren't pleasing to you, but Father, thank you that you are patient to Guide us back to uh, the right path, Lord. Guide us back into uh, your will. And so teach us again. Um, take control this morning. And uh, we give you all praise for what you want to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in, in all four of the Gospels, we see this scenario played out, and they all kind of bring out little details um, that help us to kind of understand something really, really important. Um, and, and, and the reality of it is this, that somehow or other, Judas, who uh, spent years in the presence of Jesus on a daily basis, okay? Disciples um, are not like our students today, okay? They don't come and go from a classroom and, and spend maybe an hour with the teacher. The disciples lived with Jesus. They spent days and, and time with him, ate with him, traveled with him. It, it, was, a, it was a life type of commitment. Like we're going to we're commit, um, however long this is going to last, we're going to commit that time to you on a, on a daily basis. We're going to leave everything. And so Jesus called the disciples, leave your fishing nets, leave your boats, leave your families. And you come and you follow me. And he, he told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. It was, that's the kind of commitment that we're talking about. Judas was there with Jesus in that way. And he missed, he did not understand who Jesus really was. If, in my understanding here, an argument here is that if somebody who walked with Jesus on a daily basis could miss who he was, can't we? <laughs> you know, we spend a little time in church and we think we got kind of a handle on things, but um, it, I know that I, I miss it. I miss the reality of, of the greatness and the goodness and the glory of Jesus in my own life. And, and if I can miss it, yeah, then I, I know that other people can miss it too. Uh, Judas didn't understand him. He didn't understand Jesus. He, what happened was he uh, 
Um, the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, Judas has gotten up from the meal, the Last Supper, and he went and got, you know, the soldiers. Uh, Jesus finished the meal, and they sang a song, and they left. They walked just a little ways down to the Mount of Olives and into this little garden, Garden of Gethsemane. Starts praying um, fervently. That was what we understood last week was the battle was basically won. Everything that happens after that was, was uh, in a sense, by comparison, much easier than just Jesus' willingness to do what God had called him to do. Uh, Judas uh, gets an army to come and arrest Jesus. That's, that's what he's doing. It says the crowd, okay? The crowd, when you look at the technical language from all four Gospels, the crowd um, is potentially 600 armed soldiers, okay? Not, I, I mean, I love the depiction that we see in the, the Passion of the Christ, but it does not do justice to the, the immense force that uh, was being brought to arrest Jesus. Did he need that kind of a force? Did Judas need an army to arrest Jesus? And why is that? Because even if he, he raised up hundreds of thousands of soldiers, it would not be enough to arrest Jesus if he was not willing. A million. A billion. It does. Jesus says, uh, don't you know, I have, I have ten legions of angels. He's just throwing a number out there of angels that are at my disposal. If I, You know how many angels it takes to destroy an army? Just one. You got 10,000 angels at your disposal. There's nothing that can stand against that. And I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about it. And so what happens in that moment, too, is... Um, in the Gospel of John, they say, you know, or he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And the Gospel of John very specifically uses the I am language to show us that Jesus is the I am um, referred to back in Exodus when Moses meets God at the burning bush. He says, who shall I say is sending me? He says, tell them what? I am is sending you. It's God's name that he gives. It's, it's Yahweh um, in the Hebrew and in Greek, it's uh, I am that Jesus is, uses here. And so what happens, you remember what happens when he says that? I am he, they fall down. They, they can't even resist his words. If he weren't willing, then it wouldn't have happened. There's no way. Judas doesn't get it. He thinks we're in for a fight. They obviously could have had a fight um, that week, that very week. Remember uh, just earlier, uh, there was something called the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, on a colt. And uh, the crowds are lining the streets, laying down their coats, laying down palm branches, and crying out, Hosanna, which means God save us. And uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and, and all these things that are prophetic, and they know that it's Jesus is the Messiah, or at least they give him what? <laughs> Lip service. Jesus is proclaiming and announcing that he is the Messiah. 
by doing this. This was, a, this was not a secret thing. He's proclaiming that he's the Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for, that the Scriptures have been prophesying, that they've been longing for to rescue them. And they didn't understand that he was rescuing them from sin, not from Roman occupation. He, the next day after the triumphal entry, went into the temple and he turned over the tables and he ran people off. And um, in one account, uh, he, <laughs> I love this, I probably shouldn't love it, but he made a whip and used it to drive out the people selling and getting in the way and trying to make it a market. Jesus took the time to... Isn't that cool? I just think that's cool. I'm going to make a whip because I know what's coming. They, 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 yeah, they should have or could have expected that Jesus at a moment's notice could raise an army. He, he could have resisted the arrest. He could have fled. He could have... I mean, another occasion, um, he says, and this is also in John, um, before Abraham was, I am, okay? And what do they want to do? They want to kill him on the spot. And what does it say that he did? He just walked away. So just, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything other than what he allowed them to do. And so Judas didn't understand the whole issue of this kind of grace that God would offer. So this is what happens, is that the church um, has proclaimed the gospel for the last 2,000 years, and we, um, as the church, have struggled to understand Jesus too. On, on this basis, we always preach a gospel that is by grace through faith, not by works. But, but we struggle to understand that it really, truly is a gift that God gives freely. That you, even as a believer, we have such a hard time understanding and, and, and grasping the, the weight and the reality of this that I don't earn my salvation. I, I don't deserve it. I, I don't pay for it. I... I I just have to accept it. And we don't quite get that, I think, a lot of times, because what we see is that um, there's such a shame that sin leaves its mark, and, and we're all marked by it. We're, we're marked by that shame. This is what happened with Judas. Um, he was marked by a shame of what he did, and then he ended up committing suicide. He said, I've betrayed innocent blood. But he didn't say that he had betrayed the Son of God. He didn't say that. He said, I've betrayed an innocent man. He did what Paul talks about in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. This will help us to understand how sin affects us, okay? It says, For godly grief produces repentance, leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas had worldly grief. He didn't understand the gospel. He didn't understand grace. He didn't receive it, but he had shame. And what happens with 
shame that we all have because of sin is that we have basically three options, okay? First option is to, and this is what happened with Judas, is to turn it inward. You feel such shame of, of who you are and what you've done. I, I think um, what we're seeing in our culture right now is that there is a shame um, that is driving people to want to rearrange their identity, their gender, their orientation, their whatever they're trying to send out to the world. There's such a, a deep shame that it's, it's imploding the human spirit in a lot of people. They don't know what to do with it, and it's turning inward, and it's destroying them Okay, that's, that's an inward shame. It, it causes despair, it causes depression, it causes anxiety, it causes suicide. I mean, it just, it's that sense of, of, of just being overwhelmed, of, of hating yourself so much. It, you don't know what to do with it, but it, it's driven inward. Okay, now what we see also in our culture in the same line is that that shame can also be expressed outward, which means I hate anyone who doesn't accept my sin. I am still ashamed of my sin, but you better not call it sin, and you better receive me and accept me and love me and approve of me, and if you don't, then you're evil. And we see, I mean, this is the, um, the agenda that we're living with right now in our nation. Why are Christians and Jews historically martyred in, in every nation they, they find themselves in? It's because, John says it, uh, chapter 1, true light, uh, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. This is Jesus. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, it says this is the judgment or the verdict. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That shame, okay, is stamped on every human being. We, we all have it. We inherited it. And then we turned around and we owned it because we live it out in our own sinful way. And the second option with shame is to um, hate and accuse and destroy and violently oppose those who seem to um, expose your shame. In the Bible, we see these two references, Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, what did they do? They hid, they turned their shame inward. The very next generation, Cain and Abel, Cain, what does he do with his shame? Murders Abel. He'd rather get rid of the person who's exposing his shame than to deal with his sin in light of a relationship with God. Two options, I said there were three. The third option is to remove the shame through the gospel. 
through the work of Jesus Christ and says, um, again, for godly grief, it is grief. We are still ashamed, but it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Amen? How does that begin to happen? Okay. In the garden, um, there were some things going on. Who prayed? Jesus. Okay, that wasn't a trick question. <laughs> he prayed. Uh, who failed to pray? The disciples. Jesus, um, through prayer, won the battle and the victory. And he stepped into um, not only the process of salvation through his blood, but also the glory that was going to come because he was willing to do his Father's will. The disciples, Peter especially, failed to pray. When they were called to pray, when they were challenged to pray, when they were encouraged to pray, they were sleeping. And then when Jesus is being arrested, what does Peter do? He picks up a sword. He failed to pick up the weapon that was at his disposal, which was prayer. And instead, he picked up the weapon of the world and he failed because he did not have the strength and he did not have the ability. It wasn't his call to defend Jesus like that. And here's what I'm saying. Knowing Jesus and the power of salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is not going to happen apart from prayer. And it is one of the greatest weaknesses in the church today is that we fail to pray. That's the weapon. It's, Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not what? Carnal. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and bringing into captivity every thought, making it obedient to Christ. What is that? It's my relationship with God that I have through prayer. Um, I've said this before, and this is, this is not, well, I'll just say this. <laughs> I spend a lot of time in prayer for a sermon, probably a lot more time in prayer for a sermon than in actually writing the sermon or thinking through the sermon or preparing the message. Um, the prayer that I put in is for three things, primarily. One, number one is my own heart. My heart has to be right to preach. Um, I'm going to admit to you one thing, that it isn't always right. And those are the sermons that just are awful, <laughs> which to me is like too frequent. Um, but that's, that's my need is to be right with the Lord personally. I need to be right with God in order to, to preach a message. I'm praying for the message, that it's correct, that it's the, the truth of God's word and not my opinion. Um, and then I'm praying for you to hear it, to be ready. Um, one of the things that I believe is that no matter what is said, okay, because if it is God's word being preached, 
some aspect of it is going to impact people who are ready to hear God's word. But it's the, it, the battle is won in prayer, and, um, and it's lost in prayer, honestly. If, if there's not the right prayer going into it, then you're not going to get the right result. Um, since my children were conceived, once we knew that they were um, baking, <laughs> I've prayed every single day for, for them. Every day I pray for both my girls that God would bless them, protect them, keep them from harm, evil, accident, injury, illness. I just pray over them every single day. Um, every night uh, before they go to bed, almost without fail, Molly and I both pray with our girls. Not long, you know, just a blessing, just pray with them, pray over them. I thought when they got to be teenagers, they would want to put an end to that. But so far, they're still okay with it. Um, it's just prayer. Um, every, every morning, every day in my life, I spend time in prayer. I mean, it might be 20 minutes or two hours, but I spend time in prayer every day with the Lord. And, and I'm not, <laughs> here's what I know. I know how imperfect I am. And how important prayer is. And, but here's what I also know is that because of the relationship um, with the Lord, there, there's no shame of who I am. You, you may not always love who I am, but I'm not ashamed of it. I am who God made me to be. And I make mistakes, and I bring those mistakes to the Lord, and by His grace, He forgives those things, and I seek to improve and be better and, and try to f figure out where I'm blind and where I'm missing and where I need to grow. And, and uh, sometimes I'm aware of that, and sometimes it's hard to you know, bring those things to, to that place where, where I'm allowing God to work on it. Amen? You with me? With... But... Here's what I understand about the gospel is that um, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And my concern for a lot of Christian people, okay, the world, if the world does not have Jesus Christ, then the world does not have an answer for its guilt, but for Christian people who still live with shame, okay, this is a tragedy. It's absolutely tragic because it is unnecessary and there is a solution. With a foundation of prayer, we begin to build a life that is confident in Jesus. It's not self-confidence. It's not... I'm such a great person. Look what I've done. It is a confidence in I know my Lord and I know what he's done in my life and what he's forgiven and I can be honest about my mistakes and I don't have to hide and I don't have to be ashamed of who I am and my personality quirks and, and things that are you know unique about me. <laughs> I can own them. It's okay. I don't have to be ashamed of any of that. 
Because John, I read the first part here, but the second part of each of these is, is powerful. The first part was, you know, the verdict has come into the world. Uh, light has come into the world. People uh, love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And you start to think that there's not a lot of hope for this world. Are you, are you starting to feel that way? If, if we left it there, that would, it wouldn't be a lot of hope for the world. But it says in verse 21, but whoever does what is true. Okay, now insert Jesus Christ. Whoever understands that Jesus paid the price for sin comes to the light that is Jesus so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When you begin to build your life on a foundation of prayer, then you begin to come out of the darkness and into the light and become reflective. <laughs> you just reflect Jesus to the people around you. And sometimes you say it's Jesus, and sometimes you just do the right thing, and sometimes you, you, know, you have an opportunity to say something about what you believe, and sometimes you don't, and, but you just begin to reflect that. This is character that God is producing in you that begins to be lived out. And we're no longer ashamed, and we're not hiding, we're not angry. We are the difference in the world. We, uh, we are called Christians because that word means little Christs. You are somehow a little representation and an ambassador for and a unique expression of Jesus Christ in the world. There's nothing to be ashamed of because the third option was that shame is removed. God took care of it. He put it on the cross and he took his wrath out on it and he exposed it for what it was and he destroyed it and he says, you don't have to carry it anymore. And so the Bible tells us that for those who are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. It's gone. Praise the Lord for that. My uh, invitation to you is that if you are battling shame in your life, and you know that you're a believer, you know Jesus Christ, then I'm just going to encourage you to come to the altar, even just for a moment, and just commit yourself to laying that shame at the altar. So it's not yours anymore. You, that is a satanic trick to weaken and to um, destroy the confidence of believers, that you're walking around with shame. It, you don't have to. Amen? And if that's what is holding you back, then I, I'm going to invite you just to lay it down at the altar and just start with prayer. God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you, you are willing to do that. Um, please take this shame, this sin, this guilt, whatever it is, I give it to you and I'm done carrying it around. And I'll pray for you and let's... Uh,
just worship God in our life. Amen. Father, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to lay these things down. Lord, um, our world needs to see the difference. Lord, it's not a, it's not a self-serving pride. It's not, it's not a confidence in our own ability to be good. Lord, it is a overwhelming trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is a complete dependency on you. Um, but it results in a life that is unashamed, un, unafraid, and unwilling to compromise with the deceit and the manipulation, Lord, of our enemy that works itself out in so many different ways. And our culture is squeezing in around us, Lord, trying to make us compromise and be afraid to say the truth. Afraid to even call sin, sin, because somebody might be offended by it, Lord. We, we have to call sin for what it is so that people know the amazing grace that's available through Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we have a hope that rises beyond anything that we've ever seen. Lord, we pray you cause your spirit to do a wonderful work. Set us free, and we will give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.